Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Morning. Good to see everybody. Happy time change day. This is actually, you might be interested to know, this is something a, a pastor, a statistic only a pastor would know. This is the, the lowest attendance church day in America this Sunday, for, for obvious reasons, every year. So you guys are all the, the super Christians. That's pretty cool. <laughs> Which you actually find out during the message today, that's not such a good thing. But um, yeah, so this is, it's kind of anticlimactic, anticlimactic being in, in the new building for the first time in a space that we're not going to normally be in. We're normally be down on the 11th floor like like the last two weeks. So this is kind of the soft grand opening, and then the next week is the, the real grand opening. Um, but I do, just a couple words on why we're doing this. Most of you know that the way the school thing played out is the schools are open to churches still until June or so, um, and then there'll be another appeal It'll almost certainly go against the churches at the next level up. And so then it'll be the same thing again, where you're waiting for the Supreme Court to take the case or not. So we could, we could have, we knew for sure we could have been in the school for another six months or so if we had wanted to. We knew at that point there was a good likelihood that um, we'd have to leave still. But, we, you know, you, you never know what'll happen. Uh, we had been praying that the schools will still, will stay open. And that's actually what we're still praying for um, Maybe we'll be back in the school at some point, and also for the other churches around the city that are meeting in schools that don't have anywhere else to go like, like we do. So that, that's what we wanted to do the whole time was stay in the school. That's what we had talked about repeatedly, and here we are. What, what happened in between? What happened in between is we received a sign, um, and I don't usually like to put things in those terms. You guys know that because... It's not really fair, you know, then it's kind of like, well, what am I supposed to say to that? You received a sign, you know, how do you argue with that? Um, I'd rather put things in terms of, of rational arguments, but in this case, there's really no other way to, to put it. Um, a couple weeks ago, we ended up having to meet here, um, not by our choice, because there was one week where the schools were closed, and most of you know the story that this venue was, we, we looked at 70 venues, um, 69 of them gave us a hard no, and one of them said yes, which was happened to be of the 70 venues far and away the best of the 70. So, so there's that, and then there's then there's this part about we asked them, we we came to them the first this this by the way I won't say this at the grand opening this just stays stays here. Um, we asked them the first time. Uh, what, okay, what's it going to cost to use it on a weekly basis? They said, we never do. We, our starting price to unlock the doors is $30,000. So we said, well, that's, yeah, oh, yeah, right, right. Each, yeah, for, for any single event, 
So he said, that's, not, that's probably not going to work. <laughs> um, so we, we came back a couple weeks later. We heard that there was a guy that might be friendly to our cause. We said, our budget is $1,000. <laughs> and he said, well, okay, I think we can work with that. So it's kind of like you, you apply to 70 colleges and you get rejected by all of them except Harvard, and you get offered a 90% scholarship. And you're, you're kind of thinking, is there, is there something to this? You know, and even with that, even with that, even up to that point, we still weren't going to do it because we loved being at the school, and we, the school had been great. Up to that point, we felt like, the, you know, we felt good about being there until we came two weeks ago. And there just was this sense among the, the whole leadership team, this is where we're supposed to be. And I can't necessarily explain that. Or, I, you know, I have some guesses as to why God might want us here. But that's all they are at this point. They're just guesses. But it's going to be something we wait, wait and find out. Um, the, the pastors, there's five pastors. We voted five to nothing this last week to do this. Nobody had any serious reservations. So it's just what we think God is, is nudging us. We're not really sure. Why? We could be back at the school a year from now. Um, we could stay here. We could go somewhere else. We don't really know. We think this is where he has us. We could be wrong. You know, I'm, I'm not claiming infallibility. We could, three months from now, say, wow, we really got our wires crossed. Um, but in this moment, it seems like it's the right thing for us. And, and what we've done in every stage of the life of the church is just tried to follow where God leads, not doing what necessarily always makes the most sense or kind of works out the best numbers wise um but or what's safest it's clearly not safest to move but to to follow where god leads and just in doing that then we can kind of put it on him okay well, we're following you so you have to take care of us and we want to always stay in that zone we don't ever want to get in this position where we're making our own calls and then all of a sudden it's on us to to figure out whether it's going to work or not and to to work everything out. So we feel that this is putting us in that same sweet spot where we want to stay um, in God's hands, and we'll see what happens. Um, we'll see how it plays out over the next few months. So if you're excited about it, I, I would ask that you would kind of spread that excitement to others. If you're skeptical about it, um, ask that you give it a try for a few months and see how it goes, and we'll, we'll watch together how things unfold from here. This morning we're looking at this passage from Luke 15. We're we're in uh in two gap weeks here between series. We wrapped up the How to Change series 2 weeks ago and the next week we're starting this series on the meaning of Easter, making sense of Easter 5 weeks leading up to Easter and then the one week after Easter. So we got these two gap weeks in between. Last week we had Dr. Paul Williams here with us who talked about the story of the lost son. So what I thought I'd do this morning to try to make kind of that week and this week hang together a little bit is talk about another passage that's right next to it, the story of the the lost sheep. Jesus actually tells three stories consecutively about people who lose things. The third one's the lost son. The second one's about a woman who loses a coin. And then the first one, the one we'll turn our attention to this morning, is about a lost sheep. It kind of worked out well. We talked about this passage two years ago when we changed the name of the church to Lower Manhattan Community Church and talked about part of the vision of the church. So it was a good week to revisit it again this morning. So two sections of this morning's message. 
first, what does the story mean? And then second, what does it mean to us? What does it mean? And then what does it mean to us as a church? So we'll talk about both of those before we do. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your provision for this church. Thank you for taking care of us as a group of people. I thank you for taking care of each of the families that are part of this church, for the way you watch over us and guide us. God, as we look this morning at your word, we see that you are a God who knows what it's like to lose things. We've all lost things. And I ask that as we look at that aspect of you that this morning, as we explore what it means to worship a God who has experienced loss, that you would reveal your heart to us, that we would get to know you better, understand the way you feel, and come to feel likewise. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So Jason just read this story a second ago. Um, first section, what does it mean? What does the story mean? We'll start by looking at these first two sentences that provide the context. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Those of you that have read through the Gospels before or um, been around, or those of you that are doing the Scripture reading program, you just read through Matthew a couple weeks ago, you know that the, the narrative structure of the Gospel accounts is actually kind of repetitive, kind of cyclical. It, it gets pretty predictable after a while there's this series that keeps repeating itself. So it's a, a couple of things. First, it starts with Jesus doing something provocative. And then the religious people, the religious leaders, get all upset about it. And then third, they, they voice their discontent. They say something. Then fourth, Jesus responds in some devastating way. And then fifth and finally, the, the religious people are silenced. And you would think that they would learn, you know, you'd think that they would learn to not speak up after a while, but religious people are, um, as a rule, kind of especially stubborn. Um, as a recovering religious person myself, I can, I can say that, especially stubborn. So they don't learn. They just keep doing it over and over and over again. The cycle just keeps repeating itself until there's, a, there's this day in the last week of Jesus' life where kind of events are building, momentum's building to the end. And they, they do the cycle like five or six times in one day, back to back to back. They just keep firing questions at him, and he keeps responding, and they keep going silent, and they keep come back, and they keep doing it. And finally, the last time he silences the last guy, the gospel accounts say, and after that, no one dared ask him any more questions. That was the end. And it was a couple of days later that they killed him. Because, you know, they didn't, if you can't beat him, join him. That's one way, or if you can't beat him, Kill him. If you can't beat him, eliminate him, because we're not going to be able to, to beat this guy. He's 87 and 0 now in these debates. Um, we, we don't really have a shot. So that's the, that's the narrative engine of the gospel accounts. That's what moves the story forward to its climax, and that's the, the setting of this story. This parable comes in one of those cycles. So this cycle in particular, what's the issue? What's the, the flashpoint between the religious leaders and Jesus? Jesus is welcoming, embracing, eating with sinners. And we've used that word in the passage. We, you know, maybe it's time to define it. What is, a, what is a sinner? The religious people are upset that Jesus is eating with sinners. Uh, just 
like in our day, in that day, there's basically two groups of people. There's the people that try to follow God's rules, claim to care about God, or at least pretend to, the religious people. And then there's the people that flaunt God's rules, that claim not to care about God. So we're not talking about private sin. Everybody does things wrong in private. We're talking about people who publicly say, in my lifestyle choice, in kind of my whole orientation toward the world, I'm not afraid to say publicly, I don't care about God. And I don't think that his rules apply to me. Those are the the sinners. And those are the people that Jesus is welcoming and eating with. The eating with in particular seems to be a sticking point. This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And in some translations, it even says, and even eats with them. Even eats with them. And it's kind of the, you know, in, in our day, it's still that way. You eat with somebody socially. It's kind of a sign of acceptance. But even more so in Jesus' day. When you, when you ate with someone, you're saying, this is my crew. These are my people. And Jesus is eating with the wrong crowd. He's clearly on one side of the line. Nobody's doubting that Jesus is a religious person. He's a rabbi. He's a religious teacher. His whole life is oriented around God's rules, honoring God, following God. So he's clearly on one side, and these folks are clearly on the other side of the line. And Jesus is saying, hey, we should have dinner together. And the religious leaders are saying, no, you really shouldn't. You really shouldn't do that. That's really not a good idea. And if you don't know that, there's a problem because this is the most basic principle of what it means to be a religious person. Even little kids know this. You don't associate with the bad guys. And this is not, I think it's easy to to skewer these guys or to paint them in a bad light. This is not some prejudicial, made-up thing that they were using to try to look down on other people. This is a firmly established scriptural principle. If you look on your program on your insert there section two from psalm one blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers who doesn't associate with these people but in contrast instead of that whose delight is in the law of the lord the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. The righteous and the sinners are like oil and water. They don't mix. God's looking out for this group. He's not looking out for this group. And if you're part of this group, you need to stay away from that group or else you're going to get pulled down. We talked about a version of this even a couple weeks ago. The second passage there from Proverbs 4. Do not set foot on the path of the wicked or walk in the way of evildoers. Avoid it. Do not travel on it. Turn from it and go on your own way. These guys aren't making this up. This is the way things have always worked. And there's plenty of other passages we could have looked at that, that speak to that same effect. The, the religious leaders are not the crazy ones here. They're not the, the ones that we should be questioning. Jesus is the crazy one. Jesus is the one that's doing something that doesn't really make a lot of sense. He's on one side of the line. He claims to be a religious person, and yet he's welcoming these people who flaunt God's rules. So they challenge him on it. And in response, as is his custom, he tells a story. And the story is of a shepherd who has a hundred sheep, and he's journeying home. And at some point during the journey, he looks around, and all of a sudden, he's only got 99. He's lost one sheep somewhere along the journey. So then he's faced with a decision. He's got his, his flock is now split into two segments. 
Segment A consists of 99 sheep and is secure. And segment B consists of one sheep and is unsecured. And he has to decide, do I risk the security of segment A of the 99 sheep out here in the wilderness, wolves and bears and lions and, you know, the elements? Do I risk that segment of my flock to go and try and secure segment B, the one sheep? You do not have to have an MBA. You do not need to be a hotshot management consultant to answer that question. It's easy. It would be stupid. It would be stupid to risk 99% of your flock to go after 1%. That doesn't make any sense. It's not a smart decision. At least that's what an outsider would say. That's kind of our perspective. Jesus is talking about a shepherd, and the shepherd knows his sheep. The shepherd cares about each sheep, and he's saying the shepherd isn't going to do that. The shepherd thinks not 99 and 1 and what are the risks and cut my losses. The shepherd thinks I'm not going home without that sheep. So he strikes out. He leaves the 99, risks the 99, strikes out to, to go get the one, finds it, picks it up, carries it home on our shoulders. The story does not end there. If it did end there, we wouldn't really get what the, the point of it is. We wouldn't understand his meaning. The, the next part is the key. He says, and then when he gets home, he goes and calls his friends and his neighbors and throws a party. He says, come rejoice with me because I found the one sheep that was lost. Now, the key to understanding the whole story is that there would be no reason for a party if the sheep hadn't gotten lost in the first place. The lostness is a condition of the celebration. So let's say that the shepherd leaves with, with 100 comes back with a hundred, and nothing had happened in between. He is not going to go to all his friends and neighbors and say, hey, rejoice with me, I had a non-eventful trip. He's not going to do that. There's no point in celebrating that. The celebration is in that the sheep was lost, the sheep got lost, and then it was recovered, then it was found. That's why there's a party. And the question, the response, the objection to that is, well, wait a minute. So there's going to be no party if, if you don't lose a sheep, if everybody stays, stays together. But you throw a big party for this one sheep that got lost and found. But there's no party for the 99 that never got lost. I, I mean, I don't really get it. You're, you're rewarding the one stupid sheep that couldn't stay with the group. You're celebrating the one that got lost, and the 99 get nothing. The 99 who did what they were supposed to do, who stayed on the path, get nothing. That doesn't make any sense. That's not fair. That's what the religious people are saying. The religious people that Jesus is talking to are the 99. And they're, they're upset with Jesus because they're jealous. He's hanging out with these sinners, and they're saying, Jesus, we're here. We're here. We've always been here. We're ready to learn from you. We're ready to talk with you. We're ready to follow God. We want to understand what it means to be good people. Let's talk. Lead us. We're ready. And yet you keep wandering off. You keep wandering off to go look for these sinners who don't even really want anything to do with you. Just stop it. Come back. What about us? What about us? You're kind of making us feel not important. You keep going after those people out there when we're here waiting and ready to follow you. It's not fair. And Jesus says, no, you're right. It's not fair. It's, it's certainly not fair, but it's just the way it is. It's how it works. In the exact same way 
that that shepherd celebrates the one sheep that was lost and is now found more than the 99 that were never lost. In that exact same way, heaven rejoices more over one sinner who repents than 99 righteous persons who never needed to repent. Heaven rejoices more. It's better. It's better. It's 100 times better. At least 100 times better. We don't know how much better, but it's at least 100 times better when one sinner repents than 99 righteous people who never need to repent. The difference couldn't be clearer because the religious people think there's nothing better. There's nothing better on earth than a person who follows God's path. And Jesus says, well, there is one thing that's better, and that's when somebody is far from God and is brought near to him. It's this radical statement of change. And I think it's, we're, we're so unfair to the religious leaders because the rules got changed on them. They happened to be the generation where everything got flipped around. So they look like idiots when they could have never seen this coming. They could have never seen this coming. We looked at all those passages, those two passages, and then we could have looked at, at plenty more, talking about the arrangement before was the insiders get preferential treatment and the outsiders are shunned. That was how things were set up. It changes with Jesus. If you look on the back of your insert, uh, next to the number three there from Romans 9, Paul's talking about this. And he says, you could have seen it coming, but you had to look really hard. He says, uh, as he says in Hosea, as God says in Hosea, so in the Old Testament, I will call them my people who are not my people. And I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called children of the living God. So it's there. Paul's looking back through the text and right alongside all these texts that say the righteous are in, the sinners are out, drawing a line between them. There's these other verses right alongside of them. There's less of them. They're harder to see that say, but it's not going to be this way forever. It's not going to stay this way forever. This arrangement is temporary. There's going to come a day when the outsiders are brought in. There's going to come a day when the sinners, when we go after them and bring them into the family. But you had to look really hard. You had to look really hard, and the religious leaders didn't see it coming. And it happened with Jesus. He announces, okay, that day is here. Someday is today. And it turns everything upside down. I think that, you know, here we are 2,000 years later, and listeners' fatigue sort of sets in where you've heard this before, so it becomes a little bit less radical, a little bit, uh, it's hard to, to understand what a big deal it is. In 1963, Bob Dylan wrote his most famous song, probably, The, the Times They Are a Change in This Anthem, about kind of nothing ever being the same again full of all these biblical themes and, and images and, and lines even. The, the, fir, the first now will later be last. The times they are changing. That's straight from, from Jesus. So he had this interview about the song, and he said, um, those were the only words I could find to separate aliveness from deadness. That's a pretty bold statement, separate aliveness from deadness. You think, well, this is, can a song really do all that? And I think it's, I mean, you know, now, no. Now, no. But if you go back, for some people at the time, it probably did do that. It probably did separate aliveness from deadness. So they probably were that meaning. The words probably were that meaningful. 
But w- what's happened in between? It's 50 years later, and the song's been covered a thousand times and been on a hundred soundtracks. It's on commercials. I saw it on a, a commercial for a bank. Um, it's probably exactly what Bob Dylan intended. It'd be on a commercial for a bank. And, it, you know, it doesn't mean anything anymore. It's cliche, you know. And that's kind of what happens with these words of, of Jesus. You know, it's this, this anthem of change, of radical change. The order is fading. We're going to, everything is upside down. But it's been so long, and you've heard it so many times, that it kind of becomes cliche. Big deal. But if you, if you sit with it, if you dwell with it, if you try to engage it, if you really think about what he's saying, it can hit you like it's fresh. I was reading this a while back, this, this last line. Uh, I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven, more rejoicing in heaven, more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. I was reading it at home, and I read it and just reflexively said, wow, out loud. And Brittany was in the other room, and she's like, what? I was, um, the Bible? You know, I, I don't know. I don't know what to say. It's, it's remarkable, and it's shocking, this preference for the one over the 99. So that's what it means. What does it mean for us? What does it mean for us as a church? So I, I think we can draw a pretty quick conclusion from a couple of um, obvious premises. First premise this group of people is a church. I don't think anybody would, would argue with that or doubt that. Second premise, the church is the body of Christ. It's the physical representation of Christ on earth. The third premise is Jesus' priorities are for the one over the 99. So the conclusion from those is our priority as a church, as the body of Christ, as the physical representation of Christ on earth has to be for the one over the 99. Our priority, our value has to be placed more on finding one sinner who will repent than on hurting the 99 righteous persons who don't need to repent. It has to be our value system. This, this question, uh, what do you rejoice over most? I like a lot because it kind of cuts through all the... Um, strategic planning jargon you know uh, what what are your what's your mission what are your what's your vision what are your values i don't really know i mean honestly that sounds like something from coca-cola corporate website you know like i don't i don't know what those things are and i don't want to go to some room with a whiteboard and brainstorm about them i don't even understand those words i do understand this question what do you rejoice over most what do you rejoice over most in your group, in your community, what brings the biggest party, the biggest celebration? That's what Jesus is talking about. You say, well, why do you have to rejoice over one thing most? I mean, why can't you just value lots of things? Why can't you rejoice over lots of things? There's so many good things. I guess you could do that, but you wouldn't be at church. You wouldn't be at church if you valued all things equally. You wouldn't be at church if you rejoiced over all things equally. To be at church, you have to be like Jesus. And if you're going to be like Jesus... If you're going to be like heaven, you have to rejoice most over one sinner who repents. There has to be more rejoicing over that than 99 righteous people who don't need to repent. What that means for us, what that means for our church, our group, is that it's our job to, to go out and find 
people that God cares about that say they don't want anything to, to do with God. You know, the church is not, I think we think, so why are we here? Well, we're, we're here for people who, who um, had Christian parents or people who um, have a natural interest in the Bible or people who, um, you know, are, are spiritual and, and want a place to go on Sunday morning. That's not why we're here. We're not here for those people. We're here for the people we're here for the people who God cares about, but who don't care about God. That's the people we're here for. And it's your job, it's our job to go and find them and tell them. You say, well, wait a second, what, what, do, you mean, what do you mean your job? What do you mean my job? So it's, it's one thing to say this is what Jesus cares about. But, I mean, Jesus is the shepherd, right? And the story, I mean, isn't he the shepherd? Isn't that Jesus? Isn't he the one that's supposed to go doing the, the seeking and the finding? Isn't that his job? You're kind of reversing the roles here and putting me in the shepherd position. And I'll admit, I mean, I'm guilty as charged on that. I am reversing the roles, but I'm not the first one to do that. If you look on your insert, passage uh, number four, next to four, the first passage next to number four. This is Jesus talking with Simon Peter after his resurrection. He says, it says that Jesus said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. Jesus says to Simon Peter, you're the shepherd now. It's your job now. And as that shepherd, as tending my sheep, that doesn't mean herd the 99. If you're going to be a shepherd like me, it means go and seek those that are lost. Go and seek the one that got left behind somewhere. The one that doesn't even think they want to be a part of this. That's your job now. You have to go do that. If you look at the next passage from 2 Corinthians 5, Paul is talking about this, about how you see every person differently now if you have this type of relationship with God. He says, So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. So you say, okay, there's these, these people, these sinners, who God cares about but don't care about God. So how is God going to tell them that he cares about them? What's his technique going to be? How is he going to speak to them? It says it right here. He's going to speak to them through you. He's going to speak to them through you. You say, well, I hope he has a backup plan. Hope he's got some other way to do it. Because I don't know what a good messenger I'm going to be. Bad news is there is no backup plan. It's number five, passage five from Matthew 9. When Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Same image being used there. And then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Jesus is there. He's there on earth, in the flesh. And he's looking out at the people and saying, Man, I hope some people show up to help. Because without others, without others taking this as their own job, this isn't going to happen. Paul talks about it in Romans 10, just a chapter after we were reading, when he talks about, I will call them my people who are not my people. This is the next passage down below the Matthew passage. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart 
that God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. As scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. Here he's talking about everything being opened up now. Outsiders become insiders. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And then he starts asking some poignant questions. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Do you have beautiful feet? Do you bring good news? Say, well, I haven't been sent. It says, uh, it says how can anyone preach unless they're sent? Well, I'm glad you came this morning. You're sent. You're sent. By being a part of this church, you're being sent. You're being sent. The people you work with, the people that are in your building, the people you know from a mom's group or from some social event, those are the people that you're being sent to. And it's why you're here. The, the title of the message this morning is Why You're Here. And I think, you know, it's kind of a big question. And it's, you know, one that philosophers talk about a lot. You know, what is the meaning of life? What am I, why are we here? What are we, what are we doing here? On a smaller level, you know, you might wonder, why am I here in New York? Why does God have me here in this neighborhood? Why does God have me at this job? Why does God have me in this city? This is the reason. This is the reason why you're here. It's why you're here. And if you don't do this, if you don't do this, if you don't seek out those who are lost, if you don't bring a message of God's love to sinners who say they want nothing to do with them, if you don't do that, you're missing it. You're missing the reason why you're here. You say, well, I don't know how. I don't know how to do it. I mean, even if I was convinced that I'm supposed to do it, that I need to do it, I mean, what, what are you really talking about here? Um, you know, am I supposed to take my Bible and show people verses or, um, you know, send them an, an email telling them, you know, how much God loves them? Or what are, you, what are you talking about? What am I supposed to do? Just bring them. Bring them here. Bring them here. Bring them to this building. Bring them here and let God do the rest. Bring them here. Do you want to go to church with me? It's that easy. Do you want to go to church with me? Do you want to come with me to my church? And you will be shocked by the people who say yes. You will be absolutely shocked. It's why you're here, and it's why we're here. It's why we're here. And this doesn't change whether we're at PS89 or up here. You know, preached this same message a couple years ago when we were down at PS89. So it doesn't change. It's, it's what we're going to do, whether we meet here, whether we meet at the school, whether we meet somewhere else. But it is what we're going to do. It is what we're going to do. We are going to turn our eyes and our hearts toward those outside our walls. Chesterton said, and this, I referenced this line at the retreat a couple weekend, or last weekend. He said, the church is the only society on earth that exists solely for the benefit of its non-members. Solely being the key word. If it's just us, we'll just shut it down. We'll just shut it down. There's no point. Why? Because 
somewhere out there, one sinner is repenting. And that's worth 99 of us. 99 of us. I don't want to do the thing that doesn't get a party. I don't want to do the thing that's not getting celebrated in heaven. And if that makes you feel like you're not valuable, then you understand how the religious leaders felt. It's tough. I'm not saying it's an easy thing to come to grips with. I'm not saying it's fair. You can either fight it. You can either say that's not fair for the rest of your life and be angry about it. Or you can just embrace it and say, okay, sign me up. I'll be part of the team that goes out and tries to find people sinners who need to repent. I understand people don't like to be told they're sinners. I understand people don't like to be told they need to repent. Nobody's saying it's easy. That's why you throw a party if it happens. This is what we're going to do. This is what you're going to do if you're part of our church moving forward. This is why we're here. Let's pray. Father, you are bigger than us and you're beyond us and your ways are hard for us to understand. We see your preference for one sinner repenting over 99 righteous that don't need to repent and we are confused by it and awed by it all at the same time. God, I ask that as we struggle with this idea that you would increasingly make it something that defines how we feel as well. That as we draw nearer to you, you would place this desire in our hearts too. As we open ourselves up to you, you take us and use us as your instruments to do your work. Thank you for this church. Thank you for the ways that you are using us even now. And as we move to a new space this week, as we continue to look to you for guidance and trust you with our future, I ask that you would give us an overwhelming sense of your favor and your grace toward us and your love not just for us, but for those who are outside. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.